before we dive into Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through uh, the end of the chapter, is this. The, the text we've got this morning, once again, God's been doing this over the last year and over the last many years. But once again, we come to a text here that I think is very timely. And I, I wanted to make a statement really fast to talk about the fact that it, that it may almost seem like... Um, like we chose this text specifically because of things that have happened in our country this week. I want to talk really quickly about the, uh, the heinous and sort of criminal, the violent events that happened at the Capitol building this week. And I, and I, I want to just make mention of this really quick because what we're going to see in the text in Titus today is that it's, it's absolutely necessary for the followers of Christ to be able to determine the difference between what true followership looks like and then what false followership looks like or what false teaching looks like. That's what's advocated in this text. And I think particularly at this time in our country, it's more important than ever that we who are followers of Christ not only understand what it looks like to follow and live like Christ, but that we also understand we have a responsibility to stand up and speak out when people are doing things in Christ's name that have nothing to do with the character and nature of Jesus. This week, as uh, I'm sure like me, your heart was heavy and you were grieving over uh, that insurrection at the Capitol, something historically that hasn't happened uh, since eight, the 1800s, 1814, I think is the last time that somebody stormed the Capitol building like that. And if your heart was sort of wrestling, maybe you're in a place like I am where you're going, God, please preserve this country that we love and please protect the people that are there and doing their jobs and whatever. But the thing that I found most troubling and the most heinous was that some of the people who were inciting this violence and who were causing uh, this criminal activity were also carrying signs that says, Jesus is our savior. They were shouting, Jesus is the Lord or Jesus is our king. And I just want to say unequivocally, that, that that isn't the very same Jesus that we're studying this morning. That when we see people out there who were appropriating the name of Christ in the service of violence or insurrection or criminal activity, that is not indicative of the character of the Jesus we see revealed in the incarnation and the Jesus we study here at Fullerton Free. And it's a time in our world where because that picture of Christ has been increasingly distorted by people who have appropriated his name, um, it's increasingly important for us as followers of Jesus to paint a true picture, to be a clear revelation of who Christ actually is and what he actually taught and what his actual goals and purposes were. So I just wanted to say this morning, first of all, that we, we must continue to be praying for our country. We want to be praying that the Lord Jesus is revealed accurately. But not only do we want to be praying that, as we'll see in the text this morning, we absolutely want to be searching our own hearts and recognizing the places, number one, where maybe we ourselves have been distorting the image of Christ. But number two, are there places that God has put around us where we can stand up and speak out to declare a true and accurate picture of what the peace and generosity and grace and kindness and goodness and love of Jesus is all about. I think more than ever, our country and our world need ambassadors of Jesus to correct the marred image of Jesus that we may have seen on the news this week and, and in the last couple of years. So uh, that was just kind of an opening statement. It will feel at times in this text like I, like I picked this text specifically for what's happening in the world. But you know what? God in his providence and his faithfulness, he chose this text for us in the summer of 2019. So long time ago, we put this on the map and it just happens to be where we need to be today. Let me pray for us as we begin and we'll dive in. God, we absolutely thank you and we, 
we praise you for the privilege of being born in a country like this where we can worship freely, in a country like this where we can live freely, we can raise our families, where we have freedom of speech and freedom of religion and all these great gifts. We recognize that none of those uh, are things to be taken for granted. But we also come to you, God, with a heart of heaviness and a heart of grief over a nation that is torn and divided, over a a, a people that have become at each other's throats for a variety of reasons. And God, we pray that you would use us, your ambassadors, to paint a true and accurate picture, not only of who you are, but what you are doing in us, God, that we would be living stones in a house that would be a physical presence for your spirit to be on display in our world. God, we pray that you would give our leaders wisdom. We pray that you would give... um, that you would give peace to our local leaders and our national leaders, God, that you would bring resolution to the ongoing threat of the COVID virus, God, that you would just restore peace and that you would use us in whatever way you choose, God. So now as we turn to your word, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that we would see you and hear you, that we would perceive you, that we would turn and repent, that you would heal us and that we would live in accordance to what we see in the truth of your word revealed here in Titus. We thank you for your word and all that it means to us in our daily lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, a long time ago, like I would say back in, man, this had to be like 1994, I worked at a movie theater. In fact, I worked at a movie theater for a long time. And uh, one of the movie theaters I worked at, because I worked at a couple of different ones, one of them had a Subway restaurant, like a sandwich shop, in the, uh, in the par- same parking lot where, where the movie theater was. And so I, whenever I had a break on one of my shifts, back in the day, I would walk over to the Subway and get a sandwich. Now, I'm not a big sub sandwich guy, but I like the meatball sub. You know, I mean, I know that's a cop it's not. It's like the least healthy thing on the menu. But anyway, I got to where I knew all the people that worked at the subway. I knew kind of their routines. I even knew exactly how much my food was going to cost with tax because I went in there so often. And one night, uh, it was about, I don't know, 10.30 or 11 o'clock. I was working at the theater and I walked over to the subway. And when I walked in, I was surprised because the, the girls who normally are working there weren't working. And instead, there was a guy. I'd never seen the guy before. He was wearing the subway hat. He didn't have a name tag. He was just wearing, he didn't, wasn't in a uniform, but he did have the hat. And he was wearing sunglasses. He wasn't wearing the gloves. It just felt, something just felt off about it. And I said, hey, uh, nice to see you. Are you new? And he goes, yeah, I'm new. And I said, oh, cool. I said, okay, well, I, just, I want the you know, foot-long meatball sub combo deal with the chips, and I'll just do the Doritos and the small Coke. And I was like, where's, uh, where's Rachel, who should be here? You know, the girl that normally works here. And he's like, uh, she took the night off. And I'm like, okay. And he, and he didn't ask me what kind of bread I wanted it on, which was a, a first tell, because they always ask you what kind of bread you want it on. And he just grabbed some bread and started cutting it. And then the way he cut the bread, I don't even remember now exactly how they cut the bread at Subway, but the way he cut the bread is not the way they cut the bread at Subway, right? And so I thought, well, that's a little bit weird. And then when you get a meatball sub, they put on a foot long, you got eight meatballs on that thing. I don't, you guys don't care about this. But, but he tried to cram nine meatballs. on. There was just all kinds of stuff that I thought... Something isn't right here. Something is really weird about this guy. And when we get to the end, I said, hey, uh, I don't have any cash. I just want to pay you with my ATM card. And he goes, uh, you know what? Uh, don't worry about it. You can just have that one for free. And I thought, this is really weird. Like, I don't know this guy. He doesn't have the right uniform. He didn't cut the bread right. He tried to cram too many meatballs on. The whole thing just felt a little bit off. So as I'm walking across the parking lot, I'm walking back to the, to the theater to go back to my shift. I'm carrying my stuff. And I'm just thinking about how peculiar all that was. I decide I need, I need to call somebody. So I call the police because I also knew some of the police officers that kind of worked that area because they would come to the theater. I called the police and I just said, hey, would you guys send somebody to the subway at the corner of 59th Avenue and Bell? And would you 
just check it out there, make sure everything's okay. I think something suspicious is up. They sent a cop, and when the cop came, the guy behind the counter ran out. He sprinted out of the place. They went in the back, and my friend Rachel, who works in the subway, was tied up in the back, right? So there was a robbery underway that I just happened to walk into. Fortunately, I wasn't in trouble, but it was because of my knowledge of subway and because of my knowledge of the people that work there, because of my knowledge of their regular routines, that I was able to determine that something was off. Even though that guy was pretending to work at the subway, I could tell as a regular customer that he wasn't actually a follower, that, that he wasn't actually a follower of the subway brand, if you will, right? What Titus is espousing, or what Paul is espousing to Titus in this text now, follows logically from what we saw last week. Remember last week as we began our study in Titus, Paul says to Titus, hey, as you're, as you're ministering there on Crete, remember that, that we're serving, Paul speaks of himself, we're serving for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for their knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. And we talked last week about the fact that that's a knowledge of the truth of the grace of Jesus and his saving work. We'll see that all throughout this book. And also their hope in eternal life that was promised in, age, in ages past. Paul says to Titus, then in that endeavor and in that pursuit, you should establish elders. And he went on last week to give qualifications for elders. Those qualifications have to do both with their home life and the organization and order in their homes. It has to do with their own character, being consistent with the character and identity of the Lord Jesus. And then it also had to do with their devotion or their love for the, for the truth of God's word. And at the end of the section we looked last, last week, he said the elders need to be devoted to, to God's word. They need to hold firm to God's word both so that they can call others alongside in sound doctrine, invite others into a life of faith, but secondly, so that they can rebuke and refute those who would lead others astray. We quoted uh, last week John Calvin who said that the voice of the shepherd needs both to be one to call the sheep alongside and also to chase away those who would be thieves and wolves, right? Now he will go on to elaborate what that sort of rebuke or that refutation uh, involves in a very specific case that's happening on the island of Crete, which is where this letter is written to. Here's what Paul says uh, as he tells uh, Titus, this is part of the reason why you need elders and why you have to be devoted to the truth. He says in verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. He is going to, in this text, specifically refer to a group of people uh, that present a very sort of real and present danger. He's going to talk in this section. The, the problem here will be false teachers, and we can see what they're doing. Look at verse 11. He says, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. That's a, that's a pretty decent summary of the issue that Paul is seeing. That there are false teachers who are upsetting or overturning whole families. Now, we don't know, when he talks about whole families here, uh, there's a lot of conjecture from theologians and historians to say, is he talking about actual family groups? Uh, coincidentally, the word there that talks about whole families, that word again is oikos. It's about a household, right? We've been looking at that word quite a bit recently. But there is some speculation that he's either talking about individual families, just like it seems to us, or he may also be talking about house churches. Because in the New Testament church, uh, they, didn't, they didn't have a big building like the ones we've got in most churches today. Uh, there weren't large congregations like this one. There were just these small sort of house churches in various places. So there is some speculation that maybe he's just talking about this false teaching being upsetting or being divisive in, in people's individual homes or their households. Or he may actually be talking about this false teaching being divisive and upsetting in the context of some of these smaller assemblies of God's people. 
We recognize that false teaching typically takes root in smaller groups. It happens when people begin to just sort of talk to their friends and they go, you know, I don't like this or I don't like that or this makes me frustrated or why aren't people doing it this way? This false teaching sort of spreads typically in smaller groups. It doesn't usually start in a, in a broad sort of massive gathering. But he says that there are those who for shameful gain, so understand these false teachers have a selfish motive. And I would argue that for some of uh, those who are involved in false teaching, sometimes they're even uh, ignorant of their own selfish motive. They haven't taken the time to think about what their motives are. But that there are those who are upsetting whole households for shameful gain. And he says what they're doing is they're teaching what ought not to be taught. That's the way the ESV translates it. The, The actual phrase there that's translated in the ESV, ought not to be taught, could just as easily be translated, is not necessary. They're upsetting whole households by teaching for the purpose of shameful gain what is not necessary. And we'll come to see as we get a little bit further into this, as we evaluate what these false teachers are teaching... That they're teaching things, and this false teaching specifically he's referring to, and that is most common, both in their church and in every church throughout the ages, is an addition of things that are not necessary for the life of a believer and are not necessary for salvation through the grace of Christ. Remember that one of Paul's focuses throughout the book of Titus is the idea that the grace of God is central. The grace of God is our teacher. It's what teaches us to renounce ungodliness and live holy lives. That it's not by works of righteousness, it says in Titus 3, not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saves us. So Paul is very much occupied with the idea of keeping the gospel simple and pure. Recognizing that our salvation and our spiritual life, the transformative, transformative work that God wants to do, is as a result of the grace of God and not our works, right? But he says here that there are these false teachers who've come in. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. This idea here in verse 10, when he talks about insubordinate, so I want to break this message up for you in two sections, okay? So I'm going to break it up in two sections. The first one will be the problem as identified in Titus 1, 10 through 16. And then the second one will be the solution, the problem and the solution. He talks about these false teachers and right there in verse 10, he says they're insubordinate. Now it's important to know that that word insubordinate it does have connotation of rebellion or whatever, but, but he's not talking about being insubordinate to the elders. He's not talking about being insubordinate to uh, the official leaders of their local households or their local churches. He's not even talking about insubordination to himself. What he's talking about, as we look at the rest of the text here, is an insubordination to the pure gospel of Christ, right? They are rebellious and insubordinate to the truth of the saving work of Christ that is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. So he says these false teachers, number one, are insubordinate. Number two, he says they're empty talkers. Empty talkers, what he means there, and and there's a similarity to a a passage in 1 Timothy, we'll look at in a second, that this idea of empty talk is that there's a lot of sort of religious or God talk going on, but there's not a lot of God likeness, right? That's, a, that's certainly a, a yellow flag for us in our context. We want to always be looking, as we're trying to identify false teaching and false teachers, for places where there's a lot of vain talk or a lot of useless talk, a lot of empty talk, right? Vain discussion. And it's always uh, sort of religious sounding, but it doesn't necessarily look like Christ. There's a lot of God talk without a lot of God likeness or without a lot of God living or a lot of Christ likeness, right? We see that uh, similar connotation in 1 Timothy chapter 1, which is actually a very similar text in its entirety to the one we see in Titus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says this to Timothy. 
He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Sound familiar? Same thing we're seeing in Titus. He says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. We see some of that here in Titus. Don't be devoted to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith, right? The stewardship from God that is by faith, very similar to the very purposes for which Paul is writing the letter to Titus. He says, tell them not to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies would promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by the faith. Verse five, this is really important. If you have a, if you have a pencil, I know we're in Timothy now, but you would want to underline this. Verse five, Paul says, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right? So what's he saying? He's saying when we've got the doctrine right, when you've got the teaching right, when you understand the reality that we are saved by grace and it isn't by our own actions or the works that we do, then what issues forth out of that understanding is love. Right? Love. He says that's the aim of what we're doing. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, verse 6 of 1 Timothy 1, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into, what? Vain discussions. It's the very same idea we see in Titus of empty talkers. Once you've swerved away from the grace of Christ that's taught in sound doctrine, right? And you've started to add things to Jesus or things to his grace. In order to be a good Christian, you have to adhere to certain feast days or you have to obtain, uh, you have to follow certain purification rites. Or in this particular case, you have to be circumcised, right? Some would argue, right? Once you say, yes, it's the grace of God, plus you got to go to the right kind of church, or you got to wear the right kind of clothes, or you got to have the right political affiliation, or you got to support the right kind of social justice causes, or you got to post the right things on Facebook, or you got to post the right things on Instagram. Once we add anything to the pure and simple grace of Christ, then what happens is we start to get preoccupied with things other than love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. He says certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. What is that? It's God talk without God likeness or God action. He says they're desiring to be teachers of the law, verse 7, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. We come back to Titus chapter 1, verse 10. He says these false teachers are insubordinate to the truth of who, who God is and the way he's revealed his word. Not only that, they're empty talkers. And then he says deceivers deceivers. They're those who are deceiving other people. They're leading others astray. So it isn't just that they believe these things wrongly themselves, but there becomes an external action, which is to deceive other people, right? And he says, particularly here in verse 10, those uh, or especially those of the circumcision party. A couple things I want you to see here as we kind of dive into looking at the problem. We don't understand that insubordination to the gospel, the very, the very idea of insubordination implies an internal threat, not an external threat. It implies an internal threat, not an external threat. And what I mean by that is that I think throughout the ages, certainly in the day and age we live, 
people have become increasingly fearful and worried uh, about external threats. We're worried about the threat of communism, or we're worried about the threat of socialism, or we're worried about the threat of liberalism. Or there are all of these different things. We're worried, you know, that if we don't if we don't get it right, that the church will be overthrown. Can I tell you? That if you look at the whole of scripture, you look at the whole of the teaching of Jesus in particular, but also if you look at the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament, they weren't particularly concerned about external threats. In fact, the Bible makes it pretty clear that the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against the church. That the church will be upheld and sustained by the power of God in every season and in every age. And we've seen that to be true throughout history. So even in countries where there is communism or countries where there is liberalism overrun or socialism or secularism or all of these things we see as the great villains, the church survives. The church sustains. Those external threats cannot remove or destroy the church. They can make it harder. They can make it inconvenient. They can make it difficult, but they cannot destroy the message of the gospel. What we do see Jesus and the apostles uh, absolutely focused on and speaking to frequently is internal threat. Internal threat. Where people who, as it says here in Titus 1.16, profess to know God, but deny him by their works. The real threat for us in the coming age is not people from the outside who would say, we think the Bible is a lot of hogwash, or we think Jesus was just a moral teacher, or we think that all of the rules and regulations that the Bible want to throw on mankind need to be thrown out because they're racist or sexist or whatever. Like, like the threat is not from people who deny Christ and deny the validity of the scriptures. The real threat is from people within who will subtly distort the scriptures to make them about something other than the pure and redemptive grace of Christ that will add things to the pure and redemptive grace of Christ. That's the threat. That's the thing we need to be on guard against. And so here, when he talks about this insubordination, when he talks about the circumcision party, he's talking about people who profess to know God. Now we don't know specifically here in Crete, whether the circumcision party he's talking about is similar to the, the Judaizers or those uh, that he refutes in Galatians who were saying, in order to be a Christian, in order to be a follower of Jesus, if you were a Gentile, you also had to be circumcised. It wasn't enough to just believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, but you also have to do these physical things. Paul very effectively refutes that in Galatians. He refuted it at the Council of Jerusalem. We talked about that a little bit last week. But Paul comes in and says, no, 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 it's not about any external things we do. It's not about our external compliance. It's not about where we go or what, what, what sort of meals we eat. All of those things have been purified by the grace of Christ. He is the great equalizer in all of it. So he says here, particularly of the circumcision party, and, and we think perhaps this is connected to that same sort of group that was insisting that Gentiles be circumcised, which, which Paul has fought against consistently and the church ultimately rejected, right? If you want to read more about that, you can even read about Peter's revelations in Acts 10, 9 through 15, Acts 11, 1 through 18, where God told Peter, I've, I've made all things pure, right? It's, not, it's no longer going to be about eating this and eating that and celebrating this way and celebrating that way. But we do have some hints here to what they may be focused on. So while we don't know exactly what this circumcision party teaches, we do get some hints in the midst of it. Look down with me, if you will, at, uh, at 14. When he's talking about these people he wants to rebuke or see silenced, he says that they, they should not be, in verse 14, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. They shouldn't be devoting themselves to cultural myths or the demands or the commands 
of people, the commands of people. We saw that was something Jesus frequently refuted. And as far back as Isaiah, God said about people that we have a tendency to want to reject the truth of who God is and instead follow the commandments of men as though they were the commandments of God. Jesus, in one of several places where he, where he speaks against this, I'm going to read a more extended passage with you if you don't mind. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. We're going to read this whole chunk because Jesus is speaking about this very, uh, this very same sense of having to add the commandments of men to the truth of who God is. In Mark 7, 1, it says, Now, <clears throat> when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of Jesus' disciples uh, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Make note here that that hand washing wasn't a commandment of God, but it was a tradition of men. He says, when they uh, come from the marketplace, verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees, verse 5 of Mark 7, the Pharisees and the scribes ask Jesus, why do your disciples not, not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands. Why aren't they upholding our man-made traditions, these men say. And Jesus said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, and this is a quote out of Isaiah 29, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus points at Isaiah and says, God prophesied a long time ago that there would be a sort of a person that would give vain uh, acknowledgement to God, would claim to know God, but by his actions would deny him. Would be more concerned and focused on policies and guidelines and man-made rules and legalism than he would on being freed by the grace of Christ. Jesus says this in verse 8. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do, Jesus says. You've twisted the, the, the word of God to fit your own traditions and your own selfish gain, right? Remember what Paul is saying in, the, in this text in Titus. He's saying these people for selfish gain are teaching things that are false and upsetting the household of God. Upsetting the household of God. Jesus says something similar here. Verse 14. He called the people to him again, Mark seven fourteen, and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. He says, it's not about what you eat or whether you wash your hands or whether you scrub the the dining couch. Those are all man-made traditions. What, What matters is has your heart been transformed by God or are you still dead in your sin? And if you're dead in your sin, that will be what corrupts you is that all of this wickedness will come out of you. All of this wickedness will come out. He says that the judge is not what you put in, but the judge is what is coming out. And so we come back to Titus and we recognize that when he says these people in verse 14 are devoting themselves to the Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Remember one of Paul's goals is to have people recognize a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And that truth is about the saving grace of Christ, our freedom in Christ, not about obligations and and additional rules. He says there, Interestingly, in verse 12, and this might be a, a point of contention for some of you, but it's really interesting in verse 12, he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I don't know whether that uh, sort of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. When we were first studying this as a teaching team, we kind of looked at each other and went, man, it sort of feels like Paul's being racist here, right? He, he just sort of painted all of the people in Crete with a broad brush. Now, there's a couple of things about the statement in 12 I want you to understand. Again, Paul is establishing the character of these false teachers. That is his main endeavor, to go, we can identify false teachers and false teaching. But he does so by using a cultural reference. I think that's interesting. It sort of makes me feel better about talking about Subway or Seinfeld. or I, I mean, I use some cultural references, uh, and, I, and I feel a little bit you know, sort of absolved of guilt because what Paul's doing here in Titus 1, verse 12, when he, when he says one of their prophets, he's talking about a philosopher named Epimenides. Epimenides was a guy who famously said this very same thing. What Epimenides said was that all Cretans are liars, right? That all Cretans are liars. Uh, they are evil beasts and lazy gluttons. But this was known as a philosophical paradox uh, in the time in which Jesus stated it. And it continues to be a philosophical paradox. Now, because Epimenides was a Cretan, right? So you have this really interesting paradox. It's kind of fun to wrap your brain around. Maybe for some of philosophers will find this fun to think about. But if a Cretan says all Cretans are liars, is he lying? Right? And in that case, if, all, if he says all Cretans are liars and he's a Cretan, therefore that's a lie, is he in actuality making a statement that all Cretans are honest? Right? It was a philosophical paradox that was meant to sort of expand on this idea that based on the source, you, you could evaluate what was actually being produced. Paul refers to this common philosophical paradox, and then he goes one step further and he says, you know, one of their own philosophers, referring to Epimenides, says they're liars, that they're gluttons, that they're wild, right? That they're ravenous. And when he says this statement is true, he's, he's not saying that all Cretans are this thing. Otherwise, you couldn't appoint elders from Crete. You certainly couldn't make disciples from Crete. If all of them were liars and gluttons, he's just said... He's just said in the previous section that that Titus needs to establish elders and find men of character. If Paul is making a broad racist slur against every person from Crete, then there is no possibility for him to appoint elders. No, what we see here is that he's using this cultural reference to point out that even in that paradoxical claim, there is some truth when it comes to these false teachers. That with regard to these false teachers, they are people who were liars, who were wicked and wild who are lazy and gluttonous. They're hungry for themselves. 
And then he goes on to say, after he said in 14, they devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. He says this in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying that for those of us who've embraced the grace of Christ and the love of Christ, for those of us who've recognized that no matter where we come from, no matter what our background, no matter what we've done that's beautiful, and no matter what we've done that's scandalous, that we have all been redeemed, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, when we understand what true purification is, When we understand what true purification is and that we are made pure in Christ and Christ alone, then we also recognize that no ceremony or additional work is needed. Now, we may live a life of faithfulness in response to that understanding, but we recognize that it is not required, right? And it should not be taught as such. Once we've got real purity, we recognize that there's nothing else that needs to be added or substituted. But if we have fundamentally misunderstood the purity that comes in Christ... If we fundamentally misunderstood the purity that comes in Christ, then in fact what happens is that our minds become defiled or corrupted, which means we don't have clear understanding. And he says their consciences are corrupted. That means they're incapable of discerning right and wrong. So he says to the pure, all things are pure. He's not saying that for those of us who put our faith in the grace of Christ that we can do anything, we live any way and it all becomes pure, but rather we understand that nothing needs to be added. But he says to those who are defiled and unbelieving, Nothing is pure. There's always more work they've got to do. They're always feeling like there's more striving and more effort that has to be added. And not only are they feeling that for themselves, but they're calling other people to that same kind of useless effort. He says both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They have neither understanding nor the ability to discern between right and wrong. Finally, he says in 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable. That word detestable means... um, It means they're stinky. I mean, it means that they're kind of a stench before God. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The saddest part of this is that they become the exact opposite of what they're trying to obtain by their work and advocacy. They become the exact opposite of it. They're working so hard and striving and calling other people to do all these good deeds or to have the right associations or the right philosophies or whatever. They're calling all these people to this external work which ought not to be taught or is not necessary. And in all of that striving, they're actually becoming the opposite of what they're striving for. Instead of being acceptable to God, they become detestable to God. He says, while they claim to know him, their works deny him. It's important for us to note one thing here as we continue. These, these false teachers are not villainous looking. There's no curly Q mustaches. There's no black cape. No devil horns. No glowing red eyes. These false teachers, you want to know what they look like? They look like people who profess the knowledge of God. They look like me. They look like you. They look like us. I think sometimes we read a text like this and we go, oh yeah, I'm going to watch out for these false teachers. And we start looking for people who look radical and who look crazy and who look bonkers. Why, why are cult leaders so successful historically? The reason why cult leaders are so su- successful historically is because they don't, they don't look like cult leaders. They just look like regular people who have you know, peculiar ideas. We have to be very careful that when we start thinking about this false teaching that we're recognizing these are people who profess to know God. They're people who fit in. This is an inner threat, not an external threat. 
And in that then, in that mindset and with that understanding, we have to start thinking about our own context and our own life. We certainly live in a time where there are people who will say, no, I believe that we are saved by grace through faith and, and grace alone, right? But you also have to live like this. You have to go to this kind of a church. You have to be a Democrat. You have to be a Republican. You can't support this. You can't support that. You have to post this on your Instagram or not that on your Instagram, or you can't be on Instagram at all or whatever. Any of that kind of legalism that goes beyond, Hey, we are saved by the love and grace of Christ. And that's it. Anything that we add that has to do with man-made regulations that has to do with external compliance and has to do with a marred revelation of Christ. So remember, what's the goal in all of this? The goal in all of this is an accurate revelation of Christ. You and I have to be able to look at our world and not just our world externally, but even our world internally and go, where are the places where in practice we we claim the right things, but in practice we are marring the revelation of the pure and simple grace of Christ. And in those cases, we have to acknowledge that as false teaching, as false doctrine. It is just as possible and just as much of a threat in our church and in our neighborhood and in my life as it is anywhere. We have to be on guard against it. C.S. Lewis said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. I like that quote. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. The result of this is a works-based, man-made tradition that distorts the image of Christ and leaves people dead in their sin. The result is that it distorts the image of Christ and it leaves people dead in their sin. I want you to just think for a second about the cost of false teaching, about the tragedy of false teaching, about the cruelty of false teaching. Think about the ramifications when someone claims to know Christ but denies him through, through their, their call to external actions. They're holding on to legalism They're holding on to judgmentalism, to division. I will tell you that in our own community, we see households being upset by false teaching. We see groups of people being led astray by false teachers. And so we've talked about the problem. What's the solution? Well, in this text, uh, number one, the establishment of elders is part of the solution. But remember, as we talked about last week, the elders are meant to call us alongside to these very same practices. So this isn't just an, an elder pursuit. But what he says here in 11 and in 13, number one in 11, he says the solution is that they must be silenced. Number 13, uh, excuse me, not in 13, in 14, where am I at here? Sorry, the solution we find in... 13, right? He says, the testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply. There, there needs, I mean, the, even the idea of sharp rebuke, some of us cringe at that. We go, no, I like, a, I like a little softer touch. I like a little more subtlety. I don't like sharp rebuke. What Paul is saying here is that when we identify false teachers and when we identify false doctrine, there's no room to dance around it. I think we've gotten to a place, and I don't know about you, but I, in the last year, have become fatigued from having conversations about false doctrine. And I get to a place now where I see false doctrine. I hear people advocating false teachers or leading people astray. And there's a part of me, a lazy part of me that goes, I don't want to have another argument with somebody. (laughs) Like, I I don't want to send another email that's going to make somebody mad or that I'm going to have to get into a long, torn out debate. There there are lots of areas in my own life where, where I just want to go, you know what? I'm just going to live a faithful life. And I'm just going to let other people live a faithful life. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Can I tell you that it's in that response that we have the kind of insurrection we saw in our capital this week, or that we have the kind of division and the kind of uh, 
revelation or the marring of the revelation of Christ that we have in our country, what, what needs to happen is that we have to stand up and silence these voices. That we have to stand up and sharply rebuke the places where false teaching is taking place. Even though that creates a little bit of drama and some difficulty, understand that sharp rebuke is for the sake of correction. So again, in, in 13... He says, sharply rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. The goal is their soundness in doctrine and in faith, but it requires somebody to speak up. The time has come for us to say, I can't just be silent. I have to go. I don't think that aligns with the teaching and the character of Christ. I don't think that aligns with a clear revelation of who Christ is. We have to use our voices to point out the places where the revelation of Christ is being distorted or marred because we are called to this kind of ambassadorship. I will say the elders are doing this, but the only way to do it is through devotion to the word. Uh, sometimes I like to steal my wife's phone, right? And, uh, and she doesn't like this. But when I steal my wife's phone, I know her password, by the way. If you want to know it, send me an email. I'll send it to you. But sometimes I steal my wife's phone. And when I do, I like to send out texts from her. Some of you may have gotten these texts from my wife. Whenever I send out a fake text from my wife's phone, uh, it's always something like this. I always send out a text. And I do this to my kids all the time. I'll send out a text that goes, have you seen Darren today? He looks so hot in those jeans, right? And, or I'll, I'll send out a text that's like, man, I can't stop staring at Darren's bald head today. It just makes me want to kiss him, right? Or I'll send out a text that says, do you know of any quiet place where Darren and I could sneak away for a makeout session, right? I like to send these kinds of texts. I send them to my kids. But here's what happens. When I send out a text from my wife's account that says, you know, I can't stop thinking about how hot Darren looks today. You want to know what I get back from my kids? I get back a text that says, Hi, dad. Right? Hi, dad. They know it's not her. They know it's not my wife. And for some of you who I've sent these texts to, you know it's not my wife. Why? Because you know her. You know Shannon. You know who she is. How did I know the guy at Subway was a robber? Because I knew what Subway was like. How do my kids know that when they get a text that's talking about how hot my bald head is, that's probably not my wife, right? Because they know her. They know the way she talks. Now, my wife loves me, but they can tell that's fake. How can we determine what false teaching is? How do we determine? It's not, it's not by spending all of our time looking for wickedness and evil. It's by devoting ourselves to the truth. We devote ourselves to what Jesus was actually like. We make love and grace the charge. And if we're focused on Christ and his purity and his grace and his love and his kindness, his gentleness and humility, all the things we studied in the Sermon on the Mount, when we put on that unblushing oddity, we will immediately be able to tell when something is contrary to the character of Christ. It's not that we have to devote ourselves to figuring out all the false teaching. We'll identify false teaching because we are so rooted in the truth, the character of Christ. He says here that we would rebuke them sharply, that we will speak up. Again, this is active, not passive. We do not let false gospels go uncorrected. We do not let false teaching continue. We, we see false teaching silenced and false practice exposed. So that, it says in 13, they will be sound in the faith. The goal is always correction and restoration. If you take the opposite of all these character traits, we see that then the goal is that this, these false teachers would become submitted to the gospel, worthwhile in speech, honest, selfless, gracious, sound, devoted only to the truth, pure, and understanding where that purity comes from, with their minds set on Christ, discerning having discerning consciences to tell the difference between right and wrong, not only professing a knowledge of God, but proving it in their actions, not only professing a knowledge of God, but proving it in the fruit of their life that reveals Christ accurately. 
I want to close this morning with, with three tests. Three quick tests for determining false teaching or, or false teachers as we see them revealed here in this text. The first one is false teaching. In order to determine it, there's a test of origin. There's a test of origin. And the test of origin is asking yourself, is this teaching, does this teaching come from the scriptures? Does it come from the mouth of Christ? Or does it come from a man, right? Is the origin of the teaching supernatural, right? Or is the, is the origin of the teaching natural? Is it divine or human? Would we call it revelation or tradition? You see the difference? That's the first test. Whenever we're looking at false teaching, is this revelation from God or is it tradition from man? The first test is origin. The second test would be essence. The second test would be essence. And the idea here is that we're looking at whether the teaching is focused on inward transformation that leads to external change, or is it focused purely on external compliance? False teaching is always focused on external compliance. Do this, don't do that, vote this way, go to these meetings, don't go to these meetings, show up for this thing, whatever, right? Is it focused on external compliance or inward transformation? See, the Bible teaches, Jesus himself teaches in John 15, that the externals are a byproduct of abiding in him. Internal transformation leads to fruit. But if the teaching is just about doing certain things the way men have taught it, then we know that it's both man-made and focused on external. So we look at origin, we look at essence, and then the last thing, and you've heard me say this already, the last thing is we look at result. Result. Is the result of this teaching... A clear and true revelation of Christ. Does it paint an accurate image of what Jesus was like? Or does it result in a distortion of the image of Christ? A marring of the image of Christ? When people walk into the Capitol building shouting, Jesus saves, but, but moving in, in a murderous fashion, right? In a criminal fashion, shouting, Jesus, is saved, Jesus saves, that, that mars the image of Christ. So we look, at, we look both at origin, we look at essence, and we look at result. Is it divine or human? Does it come from God or man? Revelation or tradition? The essence. Is it transforming the inside? Is it a spiritual transformation? Or is it purely physical compliance? And the last is, does it reveal Christ accurately? Or does it mar his image? When we find that things mar the image of Christ and are focused only on external compliance and are focused purely on the traditions of men or the opinions of men or the preferences of men, then we have to do what Titus 1 says and that is silence the teaching and rebuke the false practice so that they can be corrected. The time has come for us as followers of Jesus to take a stand for an accurate and true revelation of the pure saving grace of Christ. Ephesians 2 says, by grace that we're saved through faith, it's the gift of God and not of works. We have to stand up and declare that that is the truth. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us uh, a courage, a, a desire to be active and not passive. That you would stir in us a deeper devotion to the truth of who you are and what you have said so that we can more accurately refute those who are um, insubordinate to your word, who are empty talkers, who are deceivers, who are compromised both in their thinking and in their discernment, who have a selfish motive, who are deceitful and gluttonous and wild. God, that we would be able to say to these internal threats, that is not the way of Christ. That is not the way of Christ. God, help us to be a church that would stand for truth because we're devoted to you and in our standing for the truth would also refute and rebuke false teaching and false practice. 
We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.